Thanks be to God. Good to see you all today. Um, as Austin mentioned a moment ago, today marks the beginning of another year for the church. You probably noticed, as Austin pointed out, that our liturgical banner has changed color. It changed colors last week and then again this week after what seemed like a never-ending run on green throughout the season after Pentecost. Uh, but a new year is here with the beginning of Advent. It's one of my favorite times of the year, although, and you've probably picked this up from the songs that we sang, from the prayers that we have prayed together, um, and the scriptures that we have read, that for the church, Advent isn't really a season adorned with sugar plums and fairies. I mean, culturally it is, and that, that's fine, even good, but as the church, in addition to some of those festivities, we want to take time to pause and to prepare our hearts, hopefully for a deeper celebration of Christmas. And one of the ways we prepare our hearts for that celebration is by taking time to sit in the discomfort of the wait, to sit in the discomfort of the unpleasant realities that the wait often entails. Theologian Fleming Rutledge put it like this. She said, Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. So this year, we are calling our Advent series Letters to Those Who Wait. Letters to Those Who Wait, as we are going to be spending most of our time over the next few weeks considering the appointed texts from the epistles from each week. And, and I think we'll find that these texts offer us a window into how we wait well as followers of Jesus, a starting place of sorts. Letters to those who wait. And that makes sense because the expectation of early Christians, and Stephanie pointed to this several weeks ago when she taught for us, but the expectation of early Christians is that the life they entered in Jesus Christ involved waiting. But waiting is central to our faith in Christ. We, we believe that Jesus will return, and we are waiting for that. This is one of the things we profess together every week during our midweek prayer service as we confess the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Christ will come again, and we wait for that. It's a central tenet of the Christian faith. We don't know when that will be. Our task is not to speculate on timing. Our task is to simply prepare our hearts because we are a people who are waiting. This is one of the things Advent can train us in, I think, year after year. As we reflect upon Israel's anticipation and waiting for her coming Messiah, we also are spurred on to consider how we might wait faithfully for the return of Jesus. Glenn Packiam, who pastors a church in California, said this, in Advent, the church stands between two proclamations. God has come, and come, Lord Jesus. 
The first grounds our confidence that the second will be answered. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shape our hope in the return, reign, and renewal to come. We stand between these two proclamations. The question for us then is not, do we really have to wait? That is inevitable. The question becomes, in our waiting, will we wait well? And how do we grow in our ability to wait well? And I think as we explore these texts over the next few weeks, I think we're going to find that at least as a beginning point, we wait well as we love one another, as we pursue peace in our relationships with one another, and as we maintain patient hope, even in the midst of difficulty. So today we're going to focus on living lives of love for the sake of one another. And we do so by looking at the words from St. Paul in Romans chapter 13. I'll begin reading in verse 8, where he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Love, Paul says. Ten commandments could be summed up with that thought from Leviticus 19 that he quotes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We'll come back to that in a moment, but he begins with this thought, owe nothing, owe no one anything. Now, I don't think Paul is suggesting that it is sinful to take a loan or to borrow money in any and all circumstances. He's not, in my opinion, the first Dave Ramsey enthusiast. Of course, there are inherent dangers in systems where borrowing with interest is fundamental. It it certainly must be approached with wisdom by the borrower. And we acknowledge that those who lend out at back-breaking interest receive strong warnings in our scriptures. But it doesn't seem that Paul is prohibiting debt altogether. altogether. In, in fact, if we look back at verse 7, we, we get a little more clarity. He says, if you owe somebody something, pay them. If you owe taxes or revenue or respect or honor, whatever you owe, pay it. In other words, don't be delinquent in what you owe. Don't owe anyone anything. Now, because of our cultural baggage that we might bring to this text, it is possible, I think, to misunderstand what Paul is saying and interpret it as though he is, you know, maybe producing the original TikTok content or the first Instagram meme, you don't owe anyone anything. Be true to yourself. It's like that old song by the Smiths, uh, I don't owe you anything but you owe me, and you better pay now. Do you remember that? Maybe not, Kevin. 
mark, mark that down as something we need to go over. <laughs> that, that is, I, I don't owe you anything, but you owe me and you better pay now. That's, that's a ubiquitous cultural mindset that I don't owe anyone anything. It's common advice given in our world, but it's apparently not a very Christian mindset. Paul says, don't owe anyone anything except for the one thing you can't help but to owe them, and that is love. We have an obligation to love that we can't get around. It is a debt that we continue to pay on till the end of our days, and we are just paying interest. We are never reducing the principle at all. We're, we're never getting closer to the day when we don't have to live our lives guided by our obligation to love. Don't owe anyone anything except for the one thing you can't help but to owe them, and that is love. And the love Paul refers to, I think it's important to note, is not just some vision of enlightened tolerance that makes me feel good about myself. In the Christian faith, love is much more involved than a sort of reductionistic good vibes framework, where I, I have positive feelings about you, so I love you. In fact, the text that Paul quotes from Leviticus 19 we find some very detailed, some very specific ways that love was to be practically fleshed out for ancient Israel, and it required tremendous sacrifice. It was very demanding because love is ultimately not about me and me feeling good, though I do benefit from living a life of love in a roundabout way, but the real motivation is the good of my neighbor. Central to the Christian life. The debt that we can't get around owing. Love for one another. Leo Tolstoy said that everything that I understand, I understand only because I love. But love is impossible without first being awakened to the spiritual realities all around us, even in our very ordinary interactions we have with one another, where we must operate under a new system of valuation, see through new eyes the significance of each moment we enter. I think this is one of the reasons that the next admonition we find from Paul is so crucial. He's going to tell the Romans, wake up. You cannot love when you are asleep. Spiritual sleepiness almost always results in selfishness. I'm, I'm too tired or I'm too ambivalent to care about anybody else. I don't know about you, but when I'm physically exhausted, it is difficult to think about anything other than my exhaustion. And I think the same can be true in a spiritual sense. Let's continue reading in verse 11. It says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. 
So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So as we are in this season of waiting, I want to take our attention to the fact that one of the primary tasks in our waiting is to do so consciously, to wait with our eyes opened, to stay awake and alert, aware that we are waiting in the first place, aware that there are unseen spiritual realities and how I live, how I love has unseen spiritual significance. We remind ourselves that our waiting is not passive, but it's very active. The sense here from Paul is that the timing is imminent. In fact, I need to live in such a way as though the king is arriving today. I need to wake up. The idea of the imminence of the return of Christ, in my view, is not to induce some existential or apocalyptic terror, but rather I want to notice and to be aware of what Jesus is up to even now in my life and in the lives of those around me. I want to be awake enough, alert enough to notice what Jesus is calling me to and, and how he is shaping my affections so that I can be formed into his image. If we are apathetic and lethargic, I think we often miss this. We miss what Jesus is wanting to do through us and in us. This is one of the great fears St. Augustine expressed when he said, I fear that Jesus will pass by me unnoticed. Even as we wait for Christ's return, we do so with great expectancy, looking for glimpses of his presence among us today. If we are asleep or, or even groggy spiritually, I think we have a tendency to miss this. Maybe you've experienced something similar when traveling, especially if traveling with a friend, but you're exhausted from the trip, maybe jet-lagged if it's overseas, and so you think, well, I'm just going to close my eyes for a few minutes, take a bit of a cat nap, and by the time we get to the next attraction, I'm going to be rested and ready to take it all in, and you wake up only to discover that you missed that attraction by hours because your companion didn't wake you up. Have you experienced that? And you protest, I wanted to see that. Why didn't you wake me up? Well, I thought you needed your rest. Sleep in inopportune times like that can cause us to miss out on a lot of incredible experiences. We actually find language emphasizing this a lot in our scriptures. Awake. Awake. Stay alert. 
be sober-minded, be ready, wake up, O sleeper, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. There, there's something that sleep, in the spiritual sense, prevents that is so important in the life of faith. And that is this, it prevents alert, conscious, deliberative thought and action. It's like physical fatigue in some ways. You know, I've seen road signs in Utah that equate drowsy driving with drunk driving. I guess because the assumption is there wouldn't be drunk driving there. But, uh, but similar, because alertness is impaired. Similarly, similarly, drowsy spirituality prevents alert and faithful waiting. So we're obviously not talking about physical sleepiness. You know, physical slum- slumber is obviously very good and necessary. Ten out of ten, I recommend it. We're, we're talking, though, about a spiritual slumber that isn't healthy, a lethargy, apathy, a blasé, well, whatever happens is fine. It's no use struggling or or striving or yearning or, appropriate for this season, waiting. There's no use. There's no use even having discipline to sit with Jesus each day. That waiting room view where I'm just sitting around flipping through a magazine causes us to miss out on the vibrancy of Christian living in the here and now. To live and truly live. And I don't know why, but this flame, I feel like, is getting really big. So (laughs) if somebody could keep an eye on that. I just caught it out of the corner of my eye. It was really startling, so I'm sorry. Karl Barth put, put it like this. He said, we cannot define Christians simply as those who are awake while the rest sleep but more cautiously as those who wake up in the sense that they are awakened a first time and then again and again and again. They are thus those who, it is to be hoped, continually wake up. I I don't know about you, but I need to be awakened from my self-obsessed slumber routinely again and again and again, if I ever hope to live the life of love that Paul has called us to here. It's not a one-time arousal from sleep, as though we come to Christ in faith and then just put it on autopilot, wait for the age to come. Again, Paul uses this very active language that emphasizes nearness It is at hand, so autopilot isn't going to cut it. We need to be active in our waiting. Just look at the language Paul uses here, casting off the works of darkness, instead putting on the armor of light, loving one another, walking properly, forsaking activities that don't bring us into alignment with Jesus, but instead mar his image in us forsaking activities that harm us and harm others. And Paul lists some there, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, quarreling and jealousy. We must 
actively, Paul says, guard against making provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. And the particular fleshly desires that we must consciously be aware of that Paul points to here, broadly speaking, are sins associated with overindulgence, our lives as sexual beings, and our relational health with one another. The question is, are we living in a way that promotes life and health in those particular ways? And I think if we could learn to think of our lives as lives that are clothed in Christ, we might be more careful about how we live today in this moment. This is what Paul said again in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that image of clothing yourself with Jesus Christ. In a way, clothing can dictate uh, our activity or the degree of mobility we have when engaging in a particular activity. Put it this way. As we inch deeper and deeper into the winter season, we're getting closer and closer to one of my favorite things to see, and that is our four-year-old decked out in clothes waiting to go sledding because she will look like the Michelin man, and I will love every minute of it. She'll be falling over and it, she has no mobility, uh, or very limited mobility. She can't make quick or technical movements, and I, I love it. Uh, governed by that 18 uh, layers of, of thick clothing that I have forced her to wear. Of course, that's a woefully inadequate analogy, but the point is that as we clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ, that Particular clothing dictates a lot. It guides. It instructs. It realigns, not pulling strings, but as we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, as we allow him as the king not only of the world, but the king of our lives as well, we allow him to govern our lives. Not as though we become robots, or automatons, I, I only do what the programmer tells me to do. I, I don't act until somebody hits the correct keystrokes and causes movement. Personally, that sort of strict determinism has never been persuasive, as I think it destroys the possibility for genuine love which cannot be coerced. It's not as though Jesus governs our lives like a gamer controls a character, but rather, as we put on Jesus Christ, we invite him into every aspect of life and, and run everything through the filter of his life in us. And in so doing, we make no provision for the flesh. My surface-level desire takes a back seat to my allegiance to Jesus. Again, because Jesus is not just an interesting guy from the first century, but he is Lord and King, what we talked about last week. In him, I live and move and have 
my being. The 19th century Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, there are two types of Christians, those who imitate Jesus and those who are content just to admire him. Of course, simple admiration of Christ without imitation, without submission, is not faithful Christian living. So we wait well, we learn to wait well for the return of Jesus as we put Christ on, make no provision for the flesh to take us in a direction incongruent with our king and his kingdom. We stay alert. We stay awake so that we can approach this waiting period, the rest of our lives, so we can approach this waiting time not guided by apathetic or lethargic selfishness, but with an eye toward those around us. How can I love well? How can I love well? First of all, I can't do it when I'm spiritually asleep. Maybe I can occasionally, but I don't think I can consistently because when I am asleep spiritually, I am only concerned about me. This is not theory. This is, I, I have put this to the test. In my life, it's true. When I am asleep spiritually, I'm only concerned about me. So how do I love well? First, I have to wake up. I have to see through those new eyes, that new system of valuation, which changes every interaction I have with the people in my life. So just a couple of questions I want to leave us with today. Number one, in what ways has spiritual drowsiness caused me to focus only on me? In what ways has spiritual drowsiness caused me to limit my focus to me and what, what concerns me. Number two, this is maybe a bit more, requires a bit more action and specifically aimed at this week. How might I practice selfless love this week? How might I practice selfless love this week? I would encourage you in the next few moments as we celebrate around the table of our Lord to give that question some thought. As we receive the unending, gracious love of our God, we are spurred on to live lives of love for one another. How can I do that this week with somebody in my life? God, we pray that this week you would give us opportunities. And really, we're not asking for opportunities as though they haven't existed before, but we pray that you would open our eyes to the opportunities that are always in front of us. Ways in which we can sacrifice what we want, what seems good for us in the moment, for the benefit of somebody else. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help me to snap out of the trance-like stupor of busyness, unbridled consumption, 
overindulgence, a lack of self-control, all of those things that cause me to lose sight of what is really important. All of which causes me to lose sight of how I might live a life of love, bringing healing, peace, hope, and joy to those around me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen each of us in this room. Compel us to live into this alternative reality of self-giving love. Would you stand this morning as we prepare to celebrate around the table of our Lord? We'll make two lines down these center aisles. If you're visiting with us, we invite you to celebrate the table of our Lord. When you get to the front, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. I want to say a prayer by way of invitation, and then I'll invite you to join us. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?